Um, this indeed is uh, one of the heavier texts that we will read as we cross through uh, the book of Acts. Um, because it's it's the first it's the first official instance of martyrdom in the book of Acts, um, and so it's heavy, um, and it's heavy and it's and it's interesting because as heavy as it is, it's actually very timely. Uh, the British news service BBC News reported this week that there um, that Christian persecution is at near genocide levels. That's a quote. Um, I continue quoting the article here where it says the interim report said that the main impact of genocidal acts against Christians is exodus. That means basically Christians leaving due to suffering and persecution. And that Christianity is faced with being wiped out from many parts of the Middle East. Um, The article warns or the report warns that the religion, Christian religion, is at a risk of disappearing altogether in some parts of the world. It points to figures of Christians in Palestine uh, where they represent less than 1.5 of the population, 1.5% of the population, and and, in Iraq where they've fallen from 1.5 million in 2003 to less than 120,000 now. And so evidence shows that not only... Um, is the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution uh, rising and, or, or, or increasing in spread, but it's also increasing in its severity and its harshness. In some regions, the level and the nature of persecution is arguably, arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide, end quote. And so the comfort that we experience here in the United States oftentimes sedates us to the reality of real suffering in the world in the name of Jesus Christ. This suffering, as you've heard me say it again and again and again, is not new. Some people are suffering tremendously for the faith and have been suffering tremendously for the faith. Some people suffer the loss of the loss of their homes, the loss of their cars, the loss of their jobs and occupation, the, 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 the loss of, of all things, the loss of family in the name of Jesus Christ. But some not only suffer those losses, some suffer the loss of life itself. In Sri Lanka and on Easter, uh, just this past Easter, literally two weeks ago, 253 people lost their lives and another 500 people were wounded as bombers set and planted and detonated bombs in three churches and in some top flight hotels there in the city. The attacks were committed as an attack, an assault, on Christianity. And and again, this is not new. Christian martyrdom, which means the act of dying for the Christian faith, is as old as the church itself, which leads us to our account this morning. The very first martyrdom in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at the life of Stephen, what I want to fix our attention on this morning is five particular things. Five particular themes, rather, in this story. The martyr's character, the martyr's charge, the martyr's message, the martyr's murder, and the martyr's reward. His character, his charge, his message, his murder, and his reward. 
how do we define Stephen's character in this text? If you, if you read through, for example, chapter 6, there are some things that you notice about Stephen. Chapter 6, verse 8, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me or follow along. I want you to follow along because this is a long story, so we're going to be picking spots out of this story this morning. So, so if you don't mind turning to or, or scrolling to chapter 6, verse 8, and you'll find that it says that Stephen was full of power and full of grace, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Full of power and full of grace, doing great signs and wonders among the people. So we know that suffering for Christ can come despite the most incredible demonstrations of grace, that being God's favor on a life. And that suffering can come despite the most, the, the, the most incredible demonstrations of power and miracles, that being God's power and God's miracles at work in someone's life. Acts chapter 6 verse 10 says this, it says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So we know that suffering for Christ can come despite the most incredible demonstrations of wisdom and insight into the soul of a person into the, and, and ultimately into the mind and heart of God. The suffering for Christ can, can come despite the, the, the most incredible demonstration of the Spirit's presence in somebody's life. Stephen is facing suffering even though we see that he is full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom. In fact, Stephen is uh, also full of humility and full of service. We know that because Stephen is, in fact, one of, the, one of the men that was chosen by the church in Acts chapter 6 to be a deacon. And it moves from this story about Stephen being picked up, being picked as a deacon, one of service, one that was called to serve the widows that were not being served. And, he, and it moves right from that story to now we're talking about Stephen's martyrdom, his death, his murder. So this man has all the components of a wonderful, God-fearing, godly Christian man, and yet we see that his life ends in suffering. We must pray that, that, that God feel us like he feels Stephen, that he fill us with, with grace and compassion um, towards those that we oppose in the favor of God, that, that he fill us with power to, to see bound people set free and to, and to see broken people made whole, that he, that he fill us with wisdom to unveil the heart of God in a way that speaks clearly to the human condition. That he, that he fill us with his spirit to lead and to guide and to empower us all along the way. We must, we must pray prayers like that to be filled like Stephen. But as we pray prayers to be filled like Stephen for ourselves, we must also pray this prayer that God would prepare us for the times where we witness boldly for him in this way and people still don't fill us. That we witness boldly and that we set a, 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 a spotless example of what it means to live the Christian life. And people still don't feel us. And in fact, not only do they not feel us, but they resort to persecuting us. Now let me add a word of caution here as we think about this ideal of persecution for the faith. 
And, and, and I want to I want to request that we pray that God would also give us discernment to realize when our suffering is the result of faultless persecution and, and when it is the result of discipline for our faults. Suffering, is, at suffering that comes as a result of bad character is rarely worldly persecution and is oftentimes godly discipline. You understand that? We must always evaluate our character in the midst of suffering. We must always reflect on what kind of character are we showing in our suffering, in our, in when we're being opposed, to determine what is it that we are exactly, what is it that we are indeed experiencing whether it's worldly persecution or godly discipline. I'll give you an example. Just this past week, Facebook released, uh, released word uh, to the public that they had banned several extreme uh, alt-right personalities on their site, no longer allowing them the space to advertise and to share their thoughts and their opinions um, um, in, a, in a mass public way. And they had banned those, banned those people. A lot of them had nonsense um, in which they denied mass shootings of children, um, the, the Sandy Hook children, for example. Many of them were spreading, you know, false allegations that that didn't happen for real, and, and others were, were holding racist opinions towards minorities. And the response from those, from those offenders was predictable. Persecution. We're being persecuted. But saints, family, persecution is not suffering that comes from bad character. Persecution is suffering that comes from godly character. Do you understand? Persecution is what comes when the message gets in the way, not when the man gets in the way. When the messengers get in the way, that's just discipline. But when the message gets in the way, that's persecution. And Stephen is a man whose message has gotten in the way. When you look at the charge that they are holding against Stephen, you find that charge in, in, in verse, uh, or rather you find the source of that charge, where it's coming from, in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 6. It says, Stephen, full of power, full of grace, was doing great works and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedman, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. See, these opponents were Hellenistic Jews scattered through the Jewish diaspora. And so there were opponents in Asia um, that, had, that, had been, that, that were from Asia, Hellenistic Jews, Greek-cultured Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. There were opponents from Africa, Alexandria, Egypt area, Cyrene, Greek-cultured Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. Then, of course, there were some that were, that were um, 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 coming from Roman slavery. Roman slavery, not to be confused with American chattel slavery. Roman slavery, you could actually buy or earn your way out in most cases. And hence, these freedmen were, were Hellenistic Jews, more than likely, that had bought their way out, 
earned their way out or their family had earned their way out and they were the, they were the second generation of that freedom. And so these, these people, all of these people were, were Hellenistic Jews, which is interesting when you think about the fact that we talked about last week in chapter 6, Stephen was picked by the church to minister to who? The Hellenistic Jews that have been denied service, the widows that have been denied mercy service. And so here is this Hellenistic Jew, Stephen, who had been called to minister to the church, at, um, to the church full of filled with Hellenistic Jews who were being discounted and disregarded. And now this Hellenistic Jew is doing what? Proclaiming the faith in the midst of persecution to who? Hellenistic Jews. Again, we cannot be surprised by the reality that the gospel can and, and, and sometimes, oftentimes, will offend even those people that we know, even those people that we have cultural connection with, right? It will offend, and we should not be surprised when the gospel offends, and it offends severely. But how did the gospel offend these group of people particularly? Verse 10 in chapter 6, it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, the primary way that it offended was that it was simply too powerful, too persuasive, and drawing too many people away. It was too powerful for them. Sometimes opposition comes just as, uh, just as a result of effectiveness. Sometimes if you can't beat them, you kill them, in other words. Oftentimes, folks win arguments not by arguing more persuasively, but they win arguments by destroying their opponent. Our own American history displays examples of that, from Abe Lincoln to Malcolm X, from his own, uh, from his own um, um, Nation of Islam culture, Nation of Islam people. From John F. Kennedy to MLK, many people were destroyed in, an, in a drastic attempt to destroy their impact. If you can't beat them, kill them. Stephen's preaching was too impactful, and in their minds it needed to be stopped. So they decided to build a case on trumped-up charges. The charges weren't real. Verse 13 of chapter 6 highlights the charges, and they set up false witnesses. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So here's two false charges that they trumped up. One is that Stephen was defaming and disrespecting the temple, saying that Jesus was going to physically destroy it. Two was that Stephen was discounting and disregarding the law's and the customs of Moses. These are very familiar charges because these are the same charges that they often, um, that they often hurled against Jesus. They claimed that Jesus said he was going to tear down the temple. In Mark chapter 14, they said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. They often claimed that Jesus disregarded and discounted Moses in the law. When Jesus said that he came to fulfill it, he had the greatest regard and respect for the law, but yet he came to fulfill it. So these were twisting 
these allegations were twisting of the truth. Now, Stephen, I'm sure, proclaimed that through life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, that we had obtained a newfound freedom from the law. So that wasn't discounting the law. That was showing the fulfillment of the law. And I'm sure that's what they're using to accuse him of wrongdoing. So they take these two false charges, and they gather false witnesses to support these false charges. And they begin to stir up the crowd, which leads to Stephen's message in chapter 7. Now, before we go go on any further, let me straighten my mic up. About to hit a marathon here. And let me ask, do we have our Bibles open? All right. So we need to get our Bibles open because we're about to go through a marathon of about 50 verses in about 15 minutes. And I want you to follow along with me as we go through these verses. All right. So Stephen is preaching a sermon to the Hellenistic camp that covers the full redemptive story for the Jewish people. Right. And and what he is communicating is this simple truth. The men who I represent and proclaim to you, or the man who I represent and proclaim to you, is not in opposition of the law. It's not in opposition of the traditions. He is not in opposition of it. He is the true and the final fulfillment of it. So what Stephen does is he's going he's to move through the shared story that the Jews have together. And in that process of moving through it, he's going to first defend himself against the charges that were raised against him by answering those charges. But as he answers those charges, he's going to simultaneously at the same time direct their attention to Jesus. And this is what's going to lead to his death. So beginning at verse 1, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after they shall come out and work, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Joseph, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver for the sons of Hamor and Shechem. 
But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our, with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as uh, her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you not kill me? Or do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you like me from your raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey them. They thrust them aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. I'm going to stop there and just say this. Stephen defends himself against these accusations of trying to destroy God's temple by first pointing to the fact that God has always dwelled wherever he wanted to dwell. He points to early on that he was with Moses when he he found Moses in Mesopotamia. He points to the fact that he was with Joseph in Egypt. He points to the fact that he appeared to Moses in a bush at Mount Sinai. He points to the fact that he met with Moses in a temporary tent, what they call the tent of meeting in the wilderness. He points to the fact that um, until the Ark of the Covenant was constructed, God, or, or when the Ark of the Covenant was constructed, God began to meet people there. And then he obviously points all the way to the fact that it wasn't until Solomon built the temple 
that God began to dwell presently in the temple. And so his first defense is that God has always dwelled where God has chosen to dwell. Stephen's sermon is highlighting the point that our fathers always made a place for God to dwell, but the truth of the matter is God dwells where he wants to. And he goes on and he says as much in verse 48 where he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God's point, or Stephen's point to his accusers is that the temple does not hold God. God dwells wherever, wherever he desires. God is, and God is no longer dwelling in a temple. God, is the, God has created a dwelling place in us. The Bible tells us that, the, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But not only that, the scripture says that not only are we now a temple, and not only does he dwell with his people by his spirit, but he is also dwelling not in a building, but he is dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is where we now all run to find God. We don't run to a building to find God. We run to Jesus to find God. We don't run to a building to find worship. We run to Jesus and we worship him. Stephen's point is that I'm not going to destroy the temple, but it doesn't matter what happens to it because God is not confined to it. Neither is it where we go to find him. We go to Jesus. See, some of you live your Christianity based on your relationship with a building. But your Christianity is far more personal and intimate than a construction. God, by his spirit, has made his dwelling place in you. And God, by his son, has made his dwelling place a person that we are engaged in relationship and fellowship with. It is not a building that you visit. So how should that change your understanding about your Christianity? You should realize that Christianity isn't a place to be. Christianity is is a people to be. It's a full-time pursuit, not something that you put on and take off as you walk in and out of these doors. And when we gather, we gather as God's collective dwelling place. What makes Sunday morning particularly special is not the building we walk in, but the we that meet in the building. But also Christianity should, or this should tell us that Christianity is not about a place to meet, it's about a person to meet. Jesus became the temple for us. Our sinfulness was, has left us on the outside of the temple, but through Christ, the temple comes to us. We gain access to the presence of God through the Son of God. That's only the first part of Stephen's defense. He has to answer to the accusation that he's making light of Moses and discounting and disregarding the customs and the laws. 
And so Stephen points to the, to the fact that, if, as we read, that Moses has never been heeded by the people. You look at verse 9 and 10 that we read in this chapter, and we see that the fathers opposed God when they opposed Joseph and sold him into slavery. But God had mercy on them, and through Joseph, he, re- he rescued them. But then we see the fathers opposed God when they opposed Moses, forcing him into exile. Stephen even says as much in verse 25 that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation through his hand. And his brothers didn't understand that. Instead, they, tried, instead they, said, the type of, they said things to have him exiled and pushed out into, into exile for 40 plus years. Yet God had mercy on them and through Moses brought deliverance to the children of Israel out of Egypt. But the fathers opposed God again when they opposed Moses, turning their heart towards Egypt and constructing idols and worshiping other gods, leading to their eventual captivity in Babylon. And even today, Stephen's point is that they are disregarding Moses because God told them through Moses that he was going to raise up a prophet like him. And that prophet was Jesus Christ, the same one that they executed. So Stephen throws both charges back at the face of his accusers in his message. And then he says this in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stiff-necked is a picture of stubbornness. But the other analogy is even more stinging. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Basically, Stephen is, set, Stephen is saying here, you pretend to be all about the customs. You pretend to be all about the law. Yet your hearts are far, far from God. And your, and your ears are closed to his word. And this leads to his final stinging accusation. Where he says that all the prophets that you claim to love so dearly were killed by your father. And the last one was killed by you. Bottom line, Stephen's saying, I'm not the guilty party here. You're holding the wrong people on trial or the wrong man on trial. It's you who are guilty. Stephen's right. Most of our heroes are always sanitized in hindsight, right? When you look back on them, then they clean up. They clean up nice. I mentioned MLK earlier, a recent study just this year showed that MLK now enjoys a 90% favorability rating. Martin Luther King Jr. enjoys a 90% favorability rating amongst U.S. adults. The civil rights movement enjoys a 70% favorability rating amongst U.S. adults. That rating was very different during the time of the actual movement. In 1966, over two-thirds of the United States carry an unfavorable view of Martin Luther King Jr. And quite a number of people disapproved of the civil rights movement itself. See, we love those who 
dis disrupt our forefathers' way, but we only love them assuming that they wouldn't disrupt our way. See, the men here that Stephen's speaking to, they love Joseph, assuming that they would not have sold Joseph also into slavery. And they loved Moses, assuming that they wouldn't have murmured and rebelled in the wilderness like the other, like their forefathers, and built idols, and built golden calves to worship. And yet the proof is right in front of them because they killed Jesus. And Jesus was the fulfillment of Moses. And he was the fulfillment of Joseph. The reality is, is that I'm not sure we are much different than those religious leaders, though. I mean, we all look at Jesus now and we salute him as the one who brought necessary disruption to the world, right? Salvation to the world. And while we are thankful and we hold him in high regard, we do read a lot of things that he said and we just kind of gloss over them or ignore them. We tell ourselves, well, he probably didn't mean it that way. Right? And when we read some of the things he said, well, well he, he probably wouldn't have said it that way in this day and time. And it's this culture, different people, different time, probably wouldn't have said it that way. But folks, let me tell you something. People don't get killed for being really, really, really nice people. And saying all the things that people love to hear. People get killed for bringing disruption. The same is true of the one who came as God in the flesh and died for the sins of the world. He came to bring disruption. He is still bringing disruption. And so you have to ask yourself, am I making him in, in my own image or am I accepting him for who he really is and submitting my will to his? So as Stephen brings this accusation to these Hellenistic Jews, don't move so fast as putting yourself on Stephen's side right? Pause for a moment and ask yourself the honest question, how comfortable am I with the disruption that Christ brings and calls me to live out? How on board am I with his call to deny myself and come and die to myself? How comfortable am I when Christ says those really, really uncomfortable things as I'm reading in my daily morning devotionals? How comfortable am I following him. These folks were not on board, and this is what leads to Stephen's murder. Give me a few more minutes. I know we're long this morning, but it's a big text. Verse 54, it says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Listen to the language of the text. Enraged, grinding their teeth, shouting him down, yelling, crying out in a loud voice. 
stopping their ears, prohibiting them from hearing anything else that he had to say, rushing together at him to seize him to, and to take him captive, leading him to the outskirts of the city. When our pet sin is exposed or our cultural idols are identified and attacked, it can lead to this sort of nonsensical, uncontrolled, violent outrage that refuses to listen and refuses to be reasoned with and refuses to reflect and refuses to be wrong and refuses to lay down its own way for a greater way. If you walk with Jesus long enough, you will experience this to some degree. You can be loving, be gracious, be wise, be careful, be merciful, but know this. If you stand on the, on the truth of the gospel long enough, it will bring disruptions. And some of those disruptions will be against the pet sins and the idols of this culture. And oftentimes, it will bring rage and conflict. But in the midst of the outrage that Stephen is experiencing, pay very close attention to what happens. Because in the midst of his murder, he receives his reward. In the midst of his murder, he receives his reward. It says in verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazes into heaven. He gazes into heaven. And he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the midst of the outrage, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of his own murder, Stephen saw Jesus. When we, when we see this throne language in Scripture, this ideal of a throne and God the Father being at the center of that throne and Jesus Christ being on the right-hand side of the Father, we typically hear that it's Jesus sitting at the right-hand side of God. But in this moment, Stephen receives the greatest condemnation or commendation, rather, because in this moment we see and Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right-hand side of God. Almost as if the servant is viewing from the cheap seats into the clouds a standing ovation from his master. And so he's standing, Stephen is standing for Jesus. Because Jesus is standing for him. The servant is following the king. And the king, and the, and, and, and rather he's following the king in the king's suffering. See, the servant is following the king and suffering like the king for the king. And you're suffering for Christ, you may not have a moment, we may not have a moment where the clouds pierce open and we get a glimpse of Jesus standing at the right hand side of God as we suffer well for the sake of the gospel, we suffer well for the sake of the kingdom. We may not have that moment where we see the heavens 
open, but this is the assurance that I give you. While you may not see him in your suffering, he sees you. He sees you in your suffering for him. Family, we don't stand strong because we enjoy conflict with people. We stand strong because in so doing, we imitate the Savior who was standing for us. We imitate the Savior who stood for us, who stood for truth in the midst of outrage, who stood for truth in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was betrayed by one of his own friends and led to persecution, who, who stood for truth in the, in the courts of injustice as trumped-up charges were brought against him and laid on him, and they had a thug who was unapologetic in his thugging who was released instead of an innocent man because they despised the innocent man in his way that much. A man who stood for truth while nails were hammered in his hand and feet and, 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 and a sword was driven through his side. And what was that truth? That truth was that he was the savior of the world and had come to bring salvation to all those that would claim him and name him Lord and Savior. And it's only through him that that salvation could come. That is the truth that he stood for. So we stand strong because in his standing, we were saved. And we were set free from the bondage of sin. We stand strong because in his standing, we were made alive and given eternal life. Stephen says one last thing, and he says, similar to what Jesus says, when he is crucified and he, he yells, Father, forgive them for they know not what they, what they do. In verse 60, Stephen, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was not seeking to win arguments that day. Stephen was seeking to win souls. Even in death, persecution, and ultimately mur or, or, or murder and suffering, Stephen's heart was not bent towards seeing them primarily as enemies and opponents to be owned. His heart was bent towards seeing them as potential brothers and sisters to be one into the family. Stephen and his persecution is able to say, Father, forgive them, because he never lost sight of who he was representing. Forgiveness was being thought of in that moment because the one who was literally looking down on Stephen had given him the same. Lack of forgiveness is always a lack of vision. Lack of forgiveness is a lack of vision of the Savior. It's a lack of awareness of how much the Savior has forgiven us. I realize that the damage that's done to you is real. The wounds that you've suffered, they hurt. But forgiveness is not about the offense. Forgiveness is always about us and our Savior. Forgiveness is always us looking eye to eye at the one that forgave us. But lastly, Stephen never lost sight or if Stephen was able to forgive and Stephen was able to die peacefully because Stephen never lost sight of his crown. 
he never lost sight of the Savior who was looking down, standing up at the right-hand side and saying, well done. You know, what's interesting is that the name Stephen means crown. It represents victory. And on this day, he fulfilled his destiny. It certainly did not appear like a very victorious day. It appeared like a very painful one. But Stephen knew that he was literally just moments away from seeing his Savior face to face. And so he embraced the moment, knowing exactly what was in front of him. Folks, in order order for us to be effective witnesses in this world, our eyes are going to have to be redirected from what's going on around us in this world. And they're going to have to be cast to the one who's looking down on us. That redirection has to change or that redirection has to happen if we are going to be effective witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in this world that he has called us to so do. Amen.